I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. We've been looking at a series of texts that show us how God revealed the Savior to the people of old, to Abraham, to Israel, to David. This morning, we're looking at one of the ways that he revealed his son in the wilderness. Last time we saw how he showed himself in Exodus 17 with water coming forth from the rock. Today we fast forward to chapter 40. They have been out of the land of Egypt for one year. Or nearly one year when this is spoken. They have been busy during that time. They met with the Lord at Mount Sinai. They've been traveling a bit in the wilderness. And they have been building. They have been constructing. God showed Moses up on the mountain the plan for his tabernacle. Demonstrating all of its intricacies so that it would, as we will see, perfectly reflect heaven as a shadow, as a copy. And so now, that work having been pretty much completed, God speaks again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put, it in, the ark, put in it the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring the table and arrange the things that are to be set on, in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the ark of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony. And put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the labor between the tabernacle of, the meet, of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all of its utensils and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, and set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, <coughs> inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table of the tabernacle of meeting, in the tabernacle of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting, across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put the water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Amen. <clears throat> Congregation of God beloved because of Jesus Christ, I have to confess that for many years, I largely ignored the last third of Exodus, and that was a mistake. Starting in chapter 25, God describes in exquisite detail how he wants the people of God to construct the tabernacle, the place of worship, as well as all its furnishings. He describes to them how each part shall be designed, with what materials it shall be made, what shall be the size of this component or that, and where shall it be placed in the overall arrangement. And if I'm honest, it seems sort of irrelevant. I mean, God's people today aren't called to worship in a tabernacle. In fact, it's been millennia since the tabernacle stood at the center of Israel's life. I was sure those details were essential during the age of Moses and the generations that followed. But for us, living 2,000 years after Jesus came and fulfilled all of that, for us it seems sort of superfluous. But I was wrong. I was wrong because the details of the tabernacle, brothers and sisters, they stand at the heart of our identity. Because God caused these details, not just to be given to old Israel that they might understand, that they might do what he commanded. But no, he, he caused it to be preserved in the Bible for us. And that was not a mistake. God intended us to study these details, to consider their meaning and their purpose, not just for Israel of old, but for us, because they reveal to us what God intended to do and what He fulfilled through Christ. They reveal to us the Savior whom He sent and the purpose with which He came. You see, that was the reason God gave the tabernacle with all of its detailed uh, detailed arrangements by means of this beautiful tent of meeting and its furnishings and its courtyard God showed the people of God of old and he shows us what is the nature of your God 
And how can sinful people approach this amazing God? And what would the Savior be like who ultimately gave us full access? That's why the tabernacle was designed and built. And that's why God preserved those details for us. In the tabernacle, God provides a powerful portrayal of Israel's Savior. That's the theme we see in Exodus 40. And that's the theme that we must consider carefully this morning. God establishes a powerful portrayal of Israel's Savior. And that begins with the tabernacle proper and all of its furnishings, which were given to reveal Israel's reconciliation before God. And that's our first point. Now this section begins with God telling us that this is the start of a new beginning. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. It was on the 14th day of the first, of the first month in the first year, a year before, that God had delivered Israel from the land of Egypt, from the land of their slavery. One year, a time of rescue from that which had oppressed them deeply. A, a year of learning about this God who had saved them. A year of, of testing as Israel began to learn to trust this God who had delivered them. One year, and now Israel was about to see their new beginning. Their beginning of, of worshiping God in the way that He intended. Their beginning of experiencing the presence of God dwelling in their midst. Israel was on a path leading to a distinctly new and different life. And God commanded the tabernacle as the crown, as the center, as the heart of that life to show them their new identity, no longer as slaves, but as a priestly nation. Now Hebrews 8 says the tabernacle was designed as a copy or a shadow of heaven itself. Now a copy, a shadow, these are, they're less than the original, but they have a purpose. The purpose being to reveal the original itself, to show us its reality, to show us its characteristic. You see, Israel was called to love and to serve God. And so the tabernacle was given to reveal, to reveal God to them in a way that would, would, would show them how excellent our God is. And how they must relate to this excellent God. And so in this first section, we're shown the furnishings of the tabernacle. Each one made precisely according to the direction God had spoken to Moses and the image God had shown to Moses on the mountain. First thing mentioned is the Ark of the Testimony along with its veil. Now this is the article set farthest in to the tabernacle, right at the heart of the worship of God's people. It was a box covered entirely with gold, placed inside it items that spoke to Israel of their relationship with God. A copy of the law, a jar of manna, and the budded staff which revealed Aaron as the high priest. Atop the ark, the mercy seat. Carefully worked of gold with two angels on it, it represented the throne of God himself. Now this ark taught a couple of tremendous lessons for Israel. 
Above all else, it showed them that God, the great king of kings, had established his throne among them. He was no distant God, but a God with them. He was Emmanuel. But at the same time, this throne, covered with gold, protected by angels, screened off from their vision by a veil. It showed them that this God who is among them is also the holy God. He cannot be approached by a sinful people. They require propitiation. They require something to turn away the wrath of God against their sin. So that's what the ark showed them. That God is among them, but also that God is holy. They have a problem. Even though God is among them, they can't draw near to him without propitiation being made. So it pointed them already at the heart of their worship to Christ. The need for someone to offer a sacrifice that would turn away God's wrath and allow them to take full advantage of the fact that God is dwelling among them. That's, again, that's Jesus right at the heart of their worship. We heard it in our assurance of pardon. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place where the ark was. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's why he came. To fulfill what the ark showed. God among us, and yet propitiation made for our sin. Then we come to the table and to its bread. This table was not very large. It was about 18 inches deep, 30 inches wide, about 27 inches tall, covered with gold, with 12 loaves of bread arranged upon it. Now surely the bread must represent provision from God, and it does. It recalls the manna which God was providing for his people every single day. The, the provision that sustained their bodies. But it was more than that. Because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, to dine with someone implied a fellowship, a communion, a unity that was deep and real. So it showed them that God was promising. God was desiring for his people a communion, a fellowship. Not only would he dwell among them, but he would have communion with them. However, this communion could be experienced only by the priests because the table was in the holy place where only the priests could enter. And that would show Israel that, that though they had a degree of fellowship with God, it was not yet complete. Something more was needed. Something that would allow them to enter into God's presence. And of course, that something was Jesus whose life and death was aimed at restoring our relationship with God completely. So that's another of the lessons of the tabernacle, that, that God desires fellowship with us, but someone must bring us into His presence, must bring us into that holy place. Now, understand the arrangement as you come into the tabernacle. The most holy place is directly ahead, but it's behind the veil. To the right, to the north, would have been the table with its bread, Across the way was the lampstand, a lampstand made of pure gold with seven lamps upon it. Now this 
from a purely practical perspective, was absolutely needed. The tabernacle itself was a tent covered with no less than four layers. No light is getting into this structure. So if the priests are to worship, they needed light. They needed a lamp. But it was not merely practical. The lampstand was meant to depict salvation. We live in a world that is shrouded over by sin and the shadow of death. And this lamp would show that that God was bringing the light of life. Remember, this is a, an image. This whole tabernacle is an image of heaven. The glory of this place could only be seen from its inside. The richly woven curtains on which were depicted the angels of heaven. The smoke from the gold altar, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Depicting the smoke of God's presence. And there in the midst of heaven is a lampstand of gold. But look at how it's or remember how it's designed. It's not described in this chapter, but elsewhere. It's described as having a trunk made of pure gold with six branches coming off from it. So seven lights burning continuously, representing the perfection of God's presence. But a trunk with six branches, a tree, a tree of life. We lost the tree of life when we sinned in the garden. But now God promises that he will restore them to that tree of life. Will restore us to that tree of life. And you see throughout scripture God is represented as light. He's identified as light. They knew that. Moses Moses encountered God with the burning bush. They were following God through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud and fire. God was light to them and God says I myself will bring you the tree of life. I will be a tree of life to you again. This is Christ shown to them. In John chapter 8, Jesus says I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light that men need. And for those who follow Jesus, he manifests his light in them and through them. He says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So God with the lampstand is showing them his offer of life but also their calling to manifest that life to the world. So we have the table on the north, the lampstand on the south and directly ahead the veil But just before the veil, there's a small altar, only about three feet tall, 18 inches square. And it's made for burning incense. Now, kids, incense is a substance that when you burn it, when you put it on hot coals, it creates a lot of smoke and also a beautiful smell. The incense, as it caused the smoke to rise before the veil, was meant to symbolize prayer. Prayer offered morning and evening along with the sacrifice. This would show Israel that God wanted his people to pray. He wanted them to communicate with them. He wanted to hear the thoughts of their hearts. And more than that, it was a promise that he would hear. Notice where it's located. Right in front of the veil. The curtain. On the other side of which is the throne of God himself. Separated only by thin linen. That demonstrated that God was going to hear the prayers of his people. When you pray to me, I will listen, I will hear, and I will rejoice in your prayers. This this incense was a pleasing smell to God. It delighted Him. However, the altar of incense cannot stand alone. 
preceding it, outside the tabernacle proper, was a far greater altar. Seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall. Made out of not gold, but bronze, a bit more common. On this altar would be offered the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. Sacrifices in which an animal would cause it or would have its lifeblood shed, would be broken up and burned, consumed upon the altar. Continuously, offerings would be sacrificed on this altar as animals died before the Lord, as the blood that, or the, the smoke of their consumption rose to heaven. This demonstrated to God's people that if they were to enter into heaven, if they were to enter into the presence of God, if they were to enjoy that fellowship and that life and, and their prayers were to be heard, then their sin must be punished by utter and complete destruction, by judgment carried out. Their sin must be atoned for. Again, obviously, this is pointing to Christ. Because as they saw that altar, and, and the Israelites could see that altar, they would have to recognize not only that this must be done, but that what was then being done was not sufficient. Or else the sacrifices would not have to be continually offered and re-offered and re-offered again. And of course, they could see that the the sacrifices being offered, they were animals, but it was men who had committed the sin. It was not true justice. The true sacrifice, the just sacrifice would be Jesus, who according to the end of Hebrews 9, would put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That's what this altar proclaimed. The necessary sacrifice of Christ. And then having passed the altar, you came to the laver. The big bronze basin. A basin that was made specifically for the priests to wash themselves. Their hands, their feet. This showed Israel that men needed to be cleansed. Not merely from the dirt of the body, but from the impurity of the soul. The labor, the labor, too, pointed to Christ who came to cleanse our souls from sin. Isn't that what, what baptism shows us? That even as the water cleanses our bodies, so Christ cleanses our souls? Well, that's what the labor showed them. And then around all of it, a great courtyard. A screen of woven linen, seven and a half feet tall, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, separated the tabernacle from everything else. You see, the tabernacle reflected a different world, a place where every feature reflected the glory of heaven and the promise of God's covenant. This court was the courtyard of the king, where God himself, at the center of it, sits upon his throne. In such a place, there is no room for human preferences and Mere earthly desires know in this place God is the king of all. His desire holds sway and so it is separated from the world of men and their sin and their desires. This courtyard, it comprises both an invitation and a warning. A warning for those who remain outside its walls. You are separated from God and from his blessing and from his promises. But also an invitation. There is a way in. 
There is a way in for those who come by means of the sacrifice, by means of the washing, by means of Christ who is spoken of by every single article within that tabernacle. This, brothers and sisters, reveals the reconciliation of God. Now I know we're, we're drawing near to the end of our time and we still have two points, so some of you are getting worried that other two points are very brief, but they're very important. Everything in this tabernacle demonstrated Christ. It taught them Christ. But it was not a museum. It was not a picture book. It was not something that was entirely passive. The second thing we see here is that God called His people to use the tabernacle to restore their holiness before God, or better, to allow their holiness to be restored before God. Again, this is a place characterized by holiness. That's what the anointing ceremony of verses 9 through 11 is all about. It's to show Israel that they are set apart unto God. That everything in this tabernacle is devoted uniquely to Him. And because that tabernacle stands at the heart of their life, they too are anointed. They too are set apart and consecrated to God. Thus the preparation of the priests in verses 12 through 15. The priests were drawn out from among the people as their representatives before God. And so what must happen before the priests can take up their priestly work? Well, first they have to be washed, cleansed from the defilement, not just of the world, but of their sin. Again, that washing of their bodies symbolized a deeper washing through Christ's blood. And then they had to be clothed, not with the common everyday clothes that everybody else wore, but with linen. It's whiteness reflecting the holiness of Christ that cleanses those who look to Him by faith. And then, like the tabernacle itself, they had to be anointed, demonstrating to the people that they share the anointing of this holy place, that they have been set apart unto heaven and unto the God of heaven. All of this must be done upon entering their service, again, to show Israel and also us the calling of all of God's people. In Exodus 19, verse 6, God said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To us, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Even as the priests of old Israel, so today all of God's people. We all are called to be set apart to serve God, to worship the Lord, to bring Him glory. We are set apart unto the service of His holy tabernacle, not here on earth alone, but in heaven itself. This is what we receive. We receive this priesthood, this cleansing, this holiness, this anointing. The moment we trust in Jesus. And if we are in Christ, if we have faith in Him, then that washing is continual. Look at verses 30 through 32. The priests didn't just wash once. Every time they walked into the tabernacle, every time they offered a sacrifice, every time they took up part of the ministry of the tabernacle, they washed anew. 
because their cleansing had to be continual, because they were sinful, because they lived in a sinful world. And so too we, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that we need to be rebaptized every week, every day, no. We are washed with the pure water of God's word. We are cleansed by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that means that every day we come before God looking in faith to Christ and His Holy Spirit cleanses us anew. Every day we take up that word that draws us into His presence and shows us the will of our Heavenly Father and we are washed anew. See, this tabernacle, it's a visible sermon pointing us to the holiness of God. (coughs) Calling us to long for that holiness ourselves. And what does that life of holiness look like? Moses shows us. Look Look at that phrase that is repeated throughout. Verse 32, verse 29, verse 27, verse 25, verse 23, verse 21, verse 19. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. Look at verse 16. Thus Moses did according to all the Lord had commanded him, so he did. That's holiness. To be so devoted to God, so committed to Him, so possessed by the Lord. That one desires to do exactly what God commands and only what God delights in. If Israel was to be holy, and my friends, if we would be holy, we must follow the holy God. Jesus said in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then he told his disciples Upon the mountain, just before he departed from them, he told them to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, giving them the washing of his blood. But then, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And in Matthew 7, verse 21, he warned, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. If we would be holy, if we would enter into that priesthood to which we've been called, we must strive to be holy by honoring, by obeying, by following after our holy Savior. And for those who do, brothers and sisters, the reward is amazing because the reward our text shows us is nothing other than God himself. That's the last thing we see here. The tabernacle served to reestablish their communion with God. That final section, verses 34 through 38, is really the climax of this entire text. God has given His instruction for building and erecting the tabernacle. And the people under Moses' leadership have done exactly what He said. The tent having been fully erected, the priests having been cleansed and anointed and ordained. And suddenly, God Himself reveals His presence, sending down His majesty in the form of a shining cloud. They've been following this pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness. And now, despite the sin of His people, regardless of how unworthy they were, God visits His people. Filling the tabernacle with the smoke of his presence. Demonstrating to them it's not just a fiction. No. God himself is with them and he will not depart from them. 
Think of what that meant for old Israel. Every other nation worshipped their gods via dead images because they knew that the deity himself was absent and they just hoped that he would pay attention to what they did to this image of him. But not Israel. When they drew near to worship, they knew that God was there. His spiritual presence inhabited their tent, a being far too great to be confined to any one place or even to the world itself had manifested his presence among them. And so every time they approached, they knew. They knew that he was receiving them personally. How humbling that must have been. How very thrilling to know that God was with them always. And as he led them through the wilderness, as soon as the the cloud arose from atop the tabernacle, the people packed up and began to follow. And as soon as it stopped, they re-erected the tabernacle, the cloud inhabited it, and they pitched their tents around it for as long as he stayed. And so they knew that not just in their worship, but in all of life, they were following God, and God was leading them, guiding them step by step by step. And brothers and sisters, we have the, same very, the very same privilege. To be sure, the place where we worship isn't filled with a cloud when we gather, but God has told us that when we enter into worship, We enter not into the courtyard, not into the holy place. No, we enter into the most holy place itself. Wherever two or three are gathered together, he joins them there. Wherever the word is faithfully proclaimed, it is him who speaks. And when we pray in his presence, he hears us and he rejoices. So in all of life too. Not just in our worship, but in all of life. He is guiding us. He is leading us. He is accompanying us with the Holy Spirit who dwells not near us, but within. The comfort that belonged to old Israel, brothers and sisters, it's not just with us corporately, but far more truly, it's with each individual who has trusted in Christ. And that comfort today for us is tied not to a place and not to a tent but to the people of God wherever they are found throughout this entire world. Wherever the people of God are, trusting in Christ alone, their God is among them. With us too, He has reestablished our communion with Himself, and we, above all people, are blessed. Beloved saints of God, this tabernacle, it's an image of heaven. Filled with images of Christ. And that means that it shows us how God has reconciled us. How God is restoring our holiness. And blessedly how he has re-established our communion with himself. So let us study that image. Let us rejoice over that image. And let us pray that God would enable us to receive by faith all that that image proclaims that our relationship with Him might deepen and ever grow. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are great beyond all measure, not only in Your magnitude, but in the magnitude of your, Your mercy. Father, we pray that You would help us to receive the truth that Your tabernacle proclaims and to rejoice to embrace it by a living faith. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Beloved, let us proclaim what a blessing we have in having communion with our Lord Jesus and, and in serving Him in holiness. We do that by number 480, O Jesus, I have promised. Number 480.